Even if we stipulate a maximalist interpretation of China's long-term strategic objectives, we have to consider as well what material capabilities Beijing would be able to bring to service. Hey listeners, welcome back to the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. I'm your producer, Major Haziano, from the Department of Social Sciences at West Point. For this edition of the Soch Pod, we're bringing you Ali Wine, who's a senior analyst with Eurasia Group's Global Macro Practice and a non-resident fellow at USMA's Modern War Institute. He spoke with Captain Tony Palakran about the U.S.-China relationship, how the competition between the two nations has evolved over the past decade, the role that diplomacy and compartmentalization would play in our relationship, and what the U.S. can do to support Taiwan. So without too much further ado, here's the episode. Hello and welcome to the Soch Podcast. I am Captain Tony Palakran, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Mr. Ali Wine. It's great to be here with you this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Ali. Ali is a senior analyst with Eurasia Group's Global Macro Practice focusing on U.S.-China relations and great power competition. He is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security and a non-resident fellow here at the Modern War Institute. Ali was also one of the co-authors of Lee Kuan Yew, the Grand Master's Insights on China, the United States, and the world. For those of you who haven't read it, this is a fascinating book, and I highly encourage all of you to go check it out. It's not a long read at all. So, Ali, talk to us about your experience interviewing Lee Kuan Yew. What was it like to interview such a prominent personality that brought Singapore into the global stage? Well, thank you again for, for, the, for the kind invitation and for the kind words about the book, uh, we we were very lucky to have the opportunity to interview uh, an individual whose um, whose stature on the global stage belies uh, the the size, just the physical territorial size of the the country over which he presided for several decades. Um, Lee Kuan Yew. So we so Lee Kuan Yew. He passed in early 2015. Uh, we conducted our interviews with him in 2011 and 2012. And so at at this time in in tw- late 2011, early 2012. He was advanced in his age, and he was physically frail. And I think the, the signs of his physical frailty were manifest, but his mental acuity was undiminished, completely undiminished. And what I found compelling, and, and I should say that my my supervisor, uh, Professor Graham Allison, and, and his colleague, uh, Ambassador Robert Blackwell, the two of them were conducting the interviews, but I got to be a, a fly in the wall of sorts because I was responsible from our side for recording the conversations. What I found so impressive about Lee Kuan Yew is his ability to distill or really, I should say, concentrate a, a tremendous amount of profundity in very few words. And in reflecting on the book you mentioned, I think that had we conducted the series of interviews that we conducted with Lee Kuan Yew with, with many other uh, world leaders of his stature, the book would have been considerably longer. We asked him about first order questions of world order, namely sort of wither, wither China, wither the U.S.-China relationship, wither the, the international system. These are, these are big questions, and these are complicated questions that do tend to lend themselves to extended ruminations. But he was invariably pithy, uh, but his, uh, his pithiness didn't dilute his profundity. And so 
you know, Lee Kuan Yew, of course, uh, was was not uh, hesitant to express his views uh, candidly. And so I, I think that for readers of the book you reference, I suspect that just about any reader will uh, find observations of his that uh, that they agree with. They'll find other uh, observations of his objectionable. He was uh, certainly didn't shy away from controversy. And I want to you know, caveat what I just said by saying that he, you know, Lee Kuan Yew was not uh, was not in the business of idle provocation. I think that what Lee Kuan Yew was often asked why he was so candid, why was he so so forthcoming? And for Lee Kuan Yew, he he says that basically his candor comes from or came from his uh, his upbringing, and so he was forged in uh, in the crucible of war. He was forged in the crucible of some very uh, turbulent. Uh, times in the evolution of Southeast Asian geopolitics. And when Singapore came into being, there were real questions about whether um, whether this uh, polyglot polyglot entity, uh, multicultural entity, whether it could uh, whether it could emerge into a cohesive uh, geopolitical construct. And so for Lee Kuan Yew, I think that a lot of his a lot of his early leadership was forged in uh, in very existential circumstances. You know, will this country that I've inherited will it survive? Will it prosper? So Lee Kuan Yew's candor, I think, was a product of his experience. But anyway, just just to to summarize, certainly uh, he was a controversial figure both within uh, Singapore and beyond. But outside of I would say you know Dr. Kissinger, uh, Lee Kuan Yew uh, Lee Kuan Yew was probably the only individual. Uh, who commanded equal respect with and had, I would say, equal access to leaders in China as well as leaders in the United States. And one of the points that we make in the book is that Lee Kuan Yew, uh, he was a, a counselor to every United States president uh, since Richard Nixon. And he was uh, widely solicited for his advice on uh, Southeast Asian geopolitics, on uh, on managing uh, competitive dynamics and cooperative ones between the United States and China. And of course, uh, he was also a trusted confidant to an advisor to uh, Chinese leaders. Uh, just one, you know, quick anecdote, and then I'll stop. We often hear about the, the the economic reforms over which Deng Xiaoping presided, beginning in the late 1970s. And it's telling that Deng Xiaoping, as he was contemplating what what were very radical reforms given China's erstwhile economic evolution, that Deng Xiaoping, as he was contemplating these very relatively radical reforms given China's circumstances, he actually sought out. Lee Kuan Yew's advice, because Lee Kuan Yew had managed to transform this uh, quite isolated, impoverished backwater into, uh, as he calls it, a, a first world country. Uh, so, so Lee Kuan Yew was—he was a controversial figure, but a very profound figure, someone who very concisely distilled very big ideas. And so, having the opportunity to sit in on those conversations and listen to him was a very, very illuminating and very memorable experience. One that I, one that I certainly will not forget. Yeah, and that's you know that's an important point in the sense that Lee Kuan Yew was a very controversial figure, but he spoke his mind. And this was you know for the listeners, this is important to understand that this was before the current uh, circumstances with the COVID pandemic. So times might have changed, and that's what we're going to look at in today's podcast. So before we jump in, what is China's long-term ambition? And how does that affect geopolitics in Asia, but more specifically, Southeast Asia? So at the risk of sounding evasive, and I promise I'm not trying to be evasive, um, I've, I've been doing a lot of research, well, like, like many others, I've been doing a lot of research on this question. And I think that there is sometimes a tendency in, uh, in, in the discourse, at least in some of the discourse that I've reviewed, to 
presume that we know uh, the full extent of China's intentions. Um, but at least the more that I've read, and I, I in particular am, am reflecting on scholarship by Joel Wolf now at uh, National Defense Uni University and Jessica Chen Weiss at Cornell University. And I think that they've done very sophisticated scholarship that demonstrates that there is sometimes a gap between the statements that Chinese officials make and the actual realities that Chinese believe uh, Chinese leaders believe about the the extent of Chinese power and influence. Uh, sometimes uh, Chinese officials will make more triumphalist statements because they're looking to stoke nationalist sentiment. They're looking to signal resolve on their core national interests. They're looking to project confidence globally. Um, and that because of the the multiple purposes that rhetoric serves and the multiple purposes that pronouncements serve, that we can't we can't necessarily infer uh, sort of directly from uh, speeches, pronouncements, texts, and so forth, exactly the full, uh, or, or sort of exactly sort of the clear contours of China's long-term strategic ambitions. And at least in my review, I've seen, I, I think that there still remains uh, a significant debate. I think it's fair to say that more and more observers are beginning to believe that China has uh, significant global ambitions. So there are more and more observers who believe that China intends to overtake the United States for global preeminence and perhaps even establish a China-centric uh, global hierarchy that would look necessarily very different from the international system over which the United States and its allies and partners have presided for for now about the past uh, 80 years. Uh, but there's still, and I think it's important uh, to, to acknowledge that there is still a significant debate. So there's some observers who argue that uh, China is preeminently focused on regional objectives, and so it wants to establish itself or reestablish itself as the preeminent power in the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific. There are others who argue, perhaps a little bit more expansively, that China seeks to be a peer, a peer of the United States and that it seeks to uh, consecrate a bipolarity. And there are others, as I suggested earlier, who believe that China has more maximalist intentions, that it not only seeks to overtake the United States for global preeminence, but that it wants to establish a fundamentally different international system. And I guess the, the point that I would make is, one, we should acknowledge that there is still, uh, one, that there is a significant debate among scholars of China's resurgence about the, about the contours of its long-term strategic ambitions. And that I think that also, relatedly, that uh, there is a gap between uh, whatever pretensions you might have, in theory, and practical circumstances. So even if we stipulate a maximalist interpretation of China's long-term strategic objectives, we have to consider as well what material capabilities Beijing would be able to bring to service, uh, would, be, would be able to bring to bear in the service of those objectives. So even if we stipulate hypothetically that China, we, we, we stipulate the maximalist or we posit the maximalist interpretation of China's long-term strategic intentions, the question becomes, could Beijing feasibly accomplish those? And Beijing is undoubtedly a formidable competitor. It is a multifaceted competitor. It is an increasingly serious competitor. Uh, but I would argue that it is also, in many ways, a significantly constrained competitor. Um, we often talk a lot about its internal challenges, so whether, uh, you know, whether a, uh, an increasingly inefficient growth model, uh, demographic decline, environmental degradation. But I think looking outward, I think that China faces very significant foreign policy hurdles, many of which are of its own making. Um, and, I, and I suspect that we'll, in, in the context of COVID-19, we'll, we'll get into this discussion more. But I would say that over the past 
year and a half or so, or maybe not even a year and a half, maybe the past 15 months or so, I think that China has contributed quite significantly to its own diplomatic encirclement. So China often accuses the United States of seeking to contain uh, China, but I think that China has done far more than the United States to contribute to its own encirclement with its so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, with its deepening authoritarian turn. And so what we've seen uh, over the past, I think, year and a quarter or a year and a half is that it's not only that attitudes are hardening in the United States, and attitudes had been hardening in the United States uh, for several years on a bipartisan basis, but we also are seeing now that the Quad has a new lease on life. It's not to say that the Quad is necessarily going to march in lockstep. There will be divergences among the four constituent members uh, in terms of threat perceptions, in terms of policy priorities, but the Quad has a new lease on life. Um, We see... uh, a lot more activity around assembling kind of a a patchwork of groupings that might contest China's influence on different issues, ranging from human rights to infrastructure development. Uh, We also are starting to see a hardening of uh, dispositions uh, in Brussels. And I think that an interesting litmus test uh, going forward for China's diplomatic outreach will be the fate of the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment. Um, If you look at some of the comments that have been made by high-ranking European officials in recent days, uh, they would seem to put downward pressure on the possibility that this investment accord gets passed. And so I see a situation in which China, regardless of what you think its long-term strategic objectives may be, I see a growing gap between, on the one hand, China's economic centrality, which has actually grown uh, since the onset of the pandemic. I see a growing gap between its economic centrality and technological momentum on the one hand, and its diplomatic aplomb on the other. And the reason that I mentioned that gap is that intuition, uh, well, at least my intuition, would suggest that if China indeed harbors those maximalist long-term objectives, it would have to engender a baseline of stability among uh, the international community, and particularly among the advanced industrial democracies that collectively still account for the lion's share of economic power and military capacity. But outside of Russia, it seems that China's relations with most major powers are either stagnating or deteriorating. And so if China continues down its current course, if it continues to uh, contribute to its own diplomatic encirclement among advanced industrial democracies, um, if it continues with this authoritarian turn that really constrains Xi Jinping's freedom of maneuver, his freedom to recalibrate, then I think that China is going to continue placing obstacles in its own way. So uh, I think that just to summarize, there is still a there's still a vigorous debate about what China ultimately seeks to do, although I think it is fair to say that more and more observers do believe that they have quite significant, expansive long term objectives. But I would argue not to at, at the risk of sounding overly sanguine, I would argue that Uh, whatever China's uh, objectives might be, that in practice, that are going to be constrained not only by very formidable internal challenges, but by a a contested external environment and also, I I think, foreign policy mistakes uh, that that China seems intent on continuing to make. That's a great point that you bring up in the sense that it depends on who you talk to, on what the goals for China are down the road. But it's a totally different question when we talk about can Beijing even accomplish those goals, given the obstacles that it's placed in its own path. So in your book, Lee Kuan Yew mentions that China will avoid any action that will sour up relationships with the United States, and that challenge the United States will abort their peaceful rights. 
Do you think that still holds true today in the age of COVID-19 or has the paradigm shifted? I do think that the paradigm has shifted in, in the interregnum since the book's publication. So when we when we published the book uh, in early uh, January 2013, so the book's publication came shortly after uh, Xi Jinping had been elected general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party and chairman of the Central Military Commission. So it was it was clear he obviously in in late 2012 and early 2013 it was obvious that Xi Jinping was the ascendant figure in China's leadership. But at the time he was still, uh, I mean nowadays we you know Xi Jinping is in the news every day. We you know, we analyze as best as possible or try to probe his his thinking. We try to get inside his head. We try to assess how he views China's internal challenges, how he assesses the global strategic balance, so on and so forth. And so Xi Jinping is is much in the news these days. And we know a lot more, at least based on his statements, uh, we know a lot more about his his thinking and his sort of his overall confidence. But at the time when we published the book, he was still, um, I wouldn't say a black box, but he was still lower profile, even though he was clearly in the ascendancy. I think that what we've seen in the intervening years is that China has grown more confident. Um, I think that China has, mo- China has grown more confident, and I think its confidence has grown in the aftermath of COVID-19. Uh, I think that China, I think it's fair to say, and if you look at actually an essay that the former prime minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd, published in a recent issue of Foreign Affairs, he goes so far as to argue that uh, China's foreign policy is explicitly predicated on the presumption that the United States has entered into a phase of terminal decline. And so it's no longer the assessment of Xi Jinping and, and his top advisors that uh, the the United States is durably resilient over the long haul, but actually that it's in a state of terminal decline. There's much more of a sense that, as, as Xi Jinping put it, time and the situation are in China's favor. So I think that there's much more of a sense of confidence in Beijing much more of a sense that the global strategic balance has perhaps irreversibly tilted in Beijing's favor. And so that confidence means that China is going to be even less uh, even less inclined to make concessions on what it deems to be its core national interests. So I think we would expect to see uh, a more contentious relationship between uh, the United States and China over the long haul. I think that a lot of the drivers of strategic tensions between the two countries are structural and they're unlikely to to dissipate. Having said that, I, I guess I would attach one caveat, and I think it's an important one, which is that while while Beijing is is certainly conveying greater confidence, I think that China recognizes that it can ill afford an irreversible rupture in its bilateral relationship with the one country uh, that is still uh, the world's lone superpower and the one country that, uh, if not on its own, that certainly in partnership with allies and, uh, and others, uh, other like-minded countries, collectively could pose a very significant and enduring challenge to China's long-term strategic objectives. I think it's quite revealing or quite telling to that point. If you if you look at the report that the Office of the Director of National Intelligence uh, released, I believe it was in, was it in March or April. I'm forgetting if it was in March or April, but, but recently. Um, published a report on a foreign election inter- a foreign interference in last year's presidential election, and it made a very interesting distinction between uh, China's calculations and Russia's calculations. So, if you look at the report, it said that Russia's calculation was that it had very essentially it had very little to lose from being exposed in conducting election interference because Moscow's calculation is that relations between Moscow and Washington are already so poor 
that there wasn't that much marginal risk that Russia would incur by, conti by continuing to deploy election interference efforts. China, on the other hand, according to this report by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, um, felt that it would risk severe blowback if it were caught deploying election interference efforts, and so it wanted to be more circumspect. And and that and that intelligence report is is one data point, but I think it's telling. Uh, I think also if you look at China's participation in the recent uh, climate change summit that uh, the Biden-Harris administration convened, if you look at some of the conversations uh, that are going on around whether or not to or how possibly to resuscitate the uh, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, there are still areas where I think that China would like to continue a dialogue with the United States. I think that China doesn't want to and can't afford a wholesale rupture in its relationship. So I would say the paradigm has definitely shifted. China is substantially more confident and frankly, substantially more powerful and influential today than it was at the time of our book's publication. Uh, but I think that China will want to ensure that it doesn't act too precipitously, uh, lest it uh, permanently injure its relationship with the world's lone superpower that could yet, in partnership with allies and other like-minded countries, constrict China's further resurgence. But on that point, Lee Kuan Yew brings up uh, an interesting fact in the book, in the, fact, in the sense that the United States cannot have it both ways, where we can engage with China on certain issues, but then isolate and rebuke China on certain issues. But there are legitimate con concerns and common issues such as climate change and global health that we need China to cooperate with us. But at the same time, we just can't turn a blind eye on human rights violations. How do we reconcile this in a feasible strategy for the future? So if I had, if I had a good answer to such an important question, I would be able to retire tomorrow or maybe even this afternoon. <laughs> so I guess so I'm going to give I'm going to give a very I'm going to give a very impoverished and, and, and unsatisfactory answer to a question which I, I, I've, you know, I, I've, I've been thinking about. It, it, it's the question that, that, that sort of animates me throughout the day, and it, it animates some, you know, countless others throughout the day. I, I guess my, my very humble and impoverished answer would be that the essence of diplomacy, or at least a critical component of diplomacy, particularly when you are dealing with relationships that are increasingly competitive, if not adversarial, adversarial in certain regards, that the essence of diplomacy is compartmentalization. So if you look at, uh, look at the relationship between the United States and the, and the Soviet Union during the Cold War, so the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, here you have two superpowers, both of which have pretensions to a universal ideology, both of which are active in uh, promulgating their ideolog uh, ideology on a global basis, uh, both of which are uh, existential adversaries. Uh, they, you know, governed by a principle of mutually assured destruction. Um, and so, uh, and importantly, the United States and the Soviet Union made quite clear that they uh, that they didn't necessarily countenance the, the, the prospect or even the possibility of long-term cohabitation. And yet, and yet, I, I, I give their, I just wanted to give a bit of a flavor of how, how fraught their relationship was. And yet, even the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, despite or perhaps because of the, the urgency of their rivalry and the existential stakes uh, inbuilt into their rivalry, found baseline uh, mechanisms of cooperation. Perhaps the most dangerous phase of the Cold War was during the uh, the early years, so the, the, the late 1940s, the 1950s. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis then is a wake-up call. The 13 most dangerous days in, 
in human history. So the Cuban Missile Crisis impresses upon Washington and Moscow the imperative of arms control. So the United States and the Soviet Union um, using the Cuban Missile Crisis as a kind of an enduring catalyst for, for conversation and dialogue, uh, they establish arms control agreements, they establish, um, they establish de-escalation uh, protocols. So if you know, U.S. and Soviet uh, forces or proxy forces come into contact across the globe, here are de-escalation protocols. Um, also relevant in the context of COVID-19, you know, Washington and Moscow, they also collaborated on smallpox vaccine research. And so if the United States and the Soviet Union were able to compartmentalize in the way that they did on you know, maintaining a very uh, systemic, multifaceted competition, but nonetheless carving out areas of bilateral cooperation, uh, I, I see no reason why the United States and China shouldn't be able to do the same. And, and, I, and I do want to make the point that as we talk about the imperative of compartmentalization, Cooperation and compartmentalization are not acts of altruism; they're acts of necessity. Uh, and the, the point that I would want to would want to stress is that the United States, you know, leaving aside any leaving aside any normative judgments about uh, the, the the virtues of cooperation or the uh, the the enlightened the enlightened nature of salvaging cooperation from competitive dynamics, from a purely practical point of view. The United States will find it increasingly difficult to assure its own vital national interests if it's unable to salvage a baseline of cooperation with with China. And I think that the the devastating trajectory that COVID-19 has taken to date is is case in point. Uh, I think it's worth probing a a counterfactual, and it's it's a it's a it's a grim counterfactual, but I think that it's it's important to consider. What if the United States and China? When the World Health Organization declared that COVID-19 was a pandemic, what if Washington and Beijing had responded to that emergency declaration by collaborating in a manner comparable to the manner in which they uh, collaborated in the aftermath of Lehman Brothers collapse? So when Lehman Brothers collapsed, there was a very, there was a very quick recognition that what was then a quick-moving recession uh, could uh, absent absent coordinated action by great powers could morph into a repeat of the 1930s. And so the United States and China, they uh, activated their own emergency bilateral coordination. They, they jump-started uh, the G20, and they were able to arrest what was in a very fast-moving recession and arrest it from turning into a Great Depression. What we saw with, or what we've seen with COVID-19 is that far from occasioning that manner of emergency cooperation or coordination, uh, it actually served to accelerate extant tensions, and it actually has set in motion a series of dynamics that collectively have brought the U.S.-China relationship to its lowest level since normalization. Um, I think that with climate change, we can tell a similar story. Uh, the United States and China, um, yes, there is a room, there is there is a very critical role for subnational diplomacy in dealing with climate change, but I, I think that there is a fair, I, I think that there's a reasonable consensus among climate change experts that until and unless um, the the great powers and, and which also happen to be not coincidentally the principal emitters of carbon dioxide that if they're not able to uh, reach uh, binding agreements and enforce those agreements that the trajectory of climate change is only going to get worse so whether we look at climate whether we look at pandemic disease climate change uh, macroeconomic instability and the full panoply of transnational challenges it will increasingly behoove the United States and China to cooperate. But to the first part of your question, uh, the the imperative of compartmentalization in no way obviates the 
the the ineluctability of competition. And I do think that it behooves the United States to compete uh, more forcefully with China in a range of domains. So the it does behoove the United States to uh, to ensure that it is becoming more competitive in frontier technologies. I think it's important for the United States to uh, to ensure uh, that uh, that members of ASEAN who feel that they are basically that they are, are laboring under pressure uh, to supply them with foreign military finance so that they feel that they can that they can hold their own uh, in in the South China Sea. I think that the United States needs to be more forceful in protecting its uh, its intellectual property from cyber espionage for commercial gain. And I think that more generally, uh, the United States needs to, in addition to being more competitive in terms of getting its own domestic house in order, uh, repositioning itself so that it's making more common cause with its allies and partners, I think that the United States needs to be much more proactive in engaging in narrative competition. I think that China right now is trying to entrench two parallel reinforcing narratives. Narrative number one is that Beijing is resuming its rightful place in history and is inexorably resurgent. And in parallel, so the narrative goes, Washington is in terminal decline. Washington is anxiously trying to uh, buttress a system of domestic governance whose weaknesses are growing more manifest by the day. It is anxiously trying to buttress a configuration of geopolitics whose inadequacies to contemporary challenges are growing more manifest by the day. So China is trying to entrench those two parallel reinforcing narratives, and it's doing so principally on the basis of one, its own economic performance, and two, the perception of domestic dysfunction that has beset the United States. So I think that the United States, um, as it salvages or as it works to salvage areas of cooperation with China, which are essential, it needs to be much more proactive in revitalizing its competitiveness at home, in repositioning itself abroad, in pushing back on China's narrative momentum. Uh, just one last point and then I'll stop. I do think, though, that it's essential that as the United States uh, competes more forcefully with China, that it's doing so it's doing so on an asymmetric basis. And what I mean is that um, what China would like the United States to do is to respond reactively and instinctively and reciprocally. So every time China announces an initiative, China would like the United States to respond. The more that the United States conveys that it is uh, beholden to China's decisions, the more that the United States signals that it is going to react instinctively and try to come up with reciprocal measures, the more that I think it conveys or telegraphs anxiety. I think that the United States, um, it should respond to China when it feels that it needs to, when its vital national interests are imperiled. But in the main, the United States should compete more effectively, should try to compete more effectively with China by not by trying to out China China, um, as, as Jessica Chen Weiss and I argued in, in an article last year, but instead by trying to invest in you in its unique competitive advantages. I think that if the United States focuses more on domestic renewal and external repositioning on its own terms, rather than as a response to Beijing's provocations, I think that it will be able to repair itself uh, in a much more sustainable fashion. So when we talk about domestic renewal and repositioning ourselves externally, there's another global flashpoint that comes to mind when we talk about China and the United States. And this has a lot of similarities from what you talked about previously, which is between the Soviet Union and the United States uh, working through the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's now a new island off the coast of China that could become a flashpoint. The former commander for the Indo-PACOM, Admiral Philip Davidson, told U.S. senators in March 
that a threat of Chinese attack on Taiwan is quite possible within the next six years. Do you agree with that assessment? So one can't, one can't, and one never should disclaim possibilities. And there are, there are concerning signs. Uh, if you look at the intensification of military frictions between the United States and China, uh, if you look at the increasingly fraught position of uh, TSMC, which is the the dominant uh, firm in semiconductors that both the United States and China are are eyeing jealously and looking to reduce their um, and on which they're looking to reduce their over-reliance. Uh, if you look at growing uh, Chinese air and naval uh, maneuvers uh, in, in the environs of Taiwan, there are a number of concerning signals. And so one can't disclaim possibilities. I'm not yet persuaded that an assault on Taiwan is, is imminent. And I, I think that there, there are a couple of reasons that I would offer. Uh, the first is that even as Xi Jinping avows that his country's, quote, great rejuvenation is predicated upon reunification with Taiwan, he doesn't seem to betray a particular urgency to undertake that effort. And contrary to some recent speculation, the Chinese Communist Party hasn't actually accelerated its deadline for fully modernizing its military to 2027, which is the, the centenary of the PLA's establishment. Uh, the date for that objective, or for achieving that objective, it remains 2035. Uh, secondly, you know, if I'm Xi Jinping right now, certainly looking for the next, you know, looking across the next year and a half, uh, I'm preoccupied, one, with trying to pull off the Winter Olympics next February. I'm looking to secure a third term at the 20th Party Congress next fall. And so I can really ill afford to attempt something as reckless as an assault on uh, Taipei. Uh, and, and I guess another, you know, another point that I would make is that now there's some there are some observers who would rejoin, and I and I think that this rejoinder is is a is a compelling one. Some observers would rejoin that China has been more than willing to incur uh, significant damage in the pursuit of what it deems to be its its national interests. So if you look at its uh, if you you know if you look at its uh, mass internment of uh, Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, if you look at its uh, gradual suppression of pro-democracy activism in Hong Kong, that you know, China has been more than willing has been more than willing to incur widespread international opprobrium uh, in 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 the defense of its state and national interests. But in launching an assault on Taiwan, China would risk far more than reputational damage. It would risk major resistance from Taipei. It would risk a devastating military response from Washington. I think that it would do grave, if not irreparable, damage to its ties with Washington and Brussels, and and not to mention. Uh, grave, if not irreparable, uh, irreparable damage to its ties with the four militarily and economically formidable democracies that it counts as neighbors, namely Australia, India, Japan, and South Korea. And I mentioned TSMC uh, a minute ago. Um, you know, China depends heavily on TM TSMC for its own technological ambitions, and any kind of conflict scenario between the United States and China uh, over Taiwan would would imperil, if not entirely halt operations at that linchpin of the global economy. So I, it seems to me, uh, and I, again, I, I recognize that perhaps I sound overly sanguine, but it seems to me that it, it's hard to think of an action that would do more to jeopardize long, China's long-term strategic pro, uh, prospects than, than launching an incursion into Taiwan. Um, last point that I'll make just about the, the feasibility of such an operation, uh, I think it's important to remember, I mean, launching a full-scale amphibious incursion 130 kilometers from the, from the mainland 
it's not a trivial task. Uh, and the PLA hasn't had major combat experience since 1979. So, so there's a lot of rhetoric. So, so China is engaging in a lot of maneuvers. It is trying to, uh, it's, it's engaging in a lot of military maneuvers. It is, it is continuing to build its bilateral military advantage across the Taiwan Strait. Um, it continues to avow that its great rejuvenation is predicated upon reunification. Um, I suspect that some of those maneuvers and some of that rhetoric is intended as signaling ahead of the Olympics and ahead of the, the 20th Party Congress. But I think that if you look at, uh, if you look at the, the lack of urgency that Xi Jinping would appear to display in countenancing an incursion into Taiwan, if you look at the CCP's uh, continued, uh, uh, continued uh, statement that it seeks to uh, fully modernize its military by 2035, not 2027, um, if you look at the full panoply of military, economic, technological, diplomatic ramifications, devastating ramifications that China would incur, when I triangulate uh, those various considerations, I, I'm I'm disinclined to think that a uh, a contingency is is imminent. It doesn't mean that pressures aren't growing, though. Uh, I do think that uh, I think that as time passes, uh, as the imbalance of military power across the Taiwan Strait continues to grow. As TSMC becomes more of a flashpoint between Washington and Beijing, I do think that medium to long-term security risk will grow. But I, I guess I'm I'm not as convinced that a, a contingency um, is imminent. So when we say the medium to long-term security risk is growing, the current U.S. strategy, which is more ambiguous in nature, because we don't we want to keep China guessing in the sense that China should not know if we're going to attack or not going to attack. At the same time, we don't want to give undue confidence to Taiwan to declare independence and then provoking China. But this ambiguous U.S. strategy, is that a feasible strategy for the long run? I think that it is. It's understandably this, this posture of strategic ambiguity. It is understandably, it is coming under growing duress. It is coming under growing criticism. But I, I think that I think that the United States should be uh, circumspect in terms of jettisoning that that concept entirely. It has uh, it has served the cause of a tenuous stability reasonably well, even as it's coming under growing duress. I I, I would recommend two sort of two sort of major planks of effort, and and I and in these two planks of effort, I'm I'm really deeply influenced by the work of uh, Bonnie Glazer, uh, who up until recently was at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's now uh, heading up the the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund, but she really is one of the world's uh, foremost authorities on on Taiwan. Um, and she she co-authored an op-ed for NPR with uh, Richard Bush and Ryan Haas uh, almost exactly a month ago. They published it on April 8th, and and I, and I found their analysis uh, trenchant. And so I'll uh, kind of paraphrase by way of, by by way of uh, echoing their sentiments and offering then some of my my additional thoughts. The first argument that they make in terms of what the United States should do, yes, it should continue, of course, to to strengthen its defense relationship with Taiwan. The the continuation and expansion of that defense partnership is absolutely essential, uh, given Taiwan's proximity to the mainland, and given the and given that the military imbalance between Beijing and Taipei continues to grow apace. So, of course, they begin their analysis by saying that Washington and, and Taipei need to continue strengthening their defense relationship. But a uh, point number one that they make is that we also need to invest more, literally and figuratively, in diversifying the nature of our relationship with Taiwan. Uh, we need to think more about how we can strengthen our economic relationship 
with Taiwan. We need to think about how we can help Taiwan reduce its economic reliance on China. Uh, we also need to think about ways in which we can give Taiwan uh, the greater global stature that it's due. You know, Taiwan, uh, and, and I actually I had the I had the great privilege of uh, of accompanying uh, Bonnie on a trip that she. Uh, it's a delegation of uh, sort of young professionals and, and mid-career professionals that, and that, that she leads to Taiwan annually. I had the, the great fortune of accompanying her uh, as part of this delegation in 2019. And Taiwan is a, um, it is a vibrant democracy. It is a technological powerhouse. And there's rightly more and more focus on TSMC, which is a, it's, it's, a, it's an extraordinary firm. And it produces, according to The Economist, it produces 84% of the world's most advanced semiconductors. And so it's a vibrant democracy. It's a technological powerhouse. Um, and it also, um, I think that it also is a very, it has very, very important lessons to uh, to impart to the world in terms of pandemic preparedness. Uh, I suspect that a lot of observers believed or had hypothesized when COVID-19 broke out that Taiwan would be devastated. Uh, Taiwan has responded admirably. Uh, and so I think that Taiwan also has a lot to teach the world about uh, pandemic preparedness. So the point is that in addition to strengthening our security relationship with Taiwan, we should be thinking about strengthening our economic uh, partnership, reducing its reliance, economic reliance on China, thinking of ways in which we can incorporate Taiwan uh, more into uh, longstanding, prominent uh, international fora. Uh, number one and number two, and 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 here's a point that they also, uh, uh, Richard, Bonnie, and Ryan make in their piece. I think it's very important that the United States not feed into a Chinese narrative. I think that China wants China would like Taiwan to conclude that over the long haul, that Taipei's de facto absorption into the mainland is a matter of time. And so I think that what China is trying to do is uh, by continuing to build up its military bilateral mili military advantage across the Taiwan Strait by increasing the the pace and scope of uh, sort of coercive military activities around Taiwan uh, by continuing to put diplomatic and economic pressure on Taiwan I think that, chi that China is trying to grind down Taiwan psychologically and I think that it's trying to convince Taiwan that over the long term that it will eventually have to acquiesce to resolving cross-strait tensions on China's terms. And so one of the concerns that I have is that to the extent that this rhetoric about the, the imminence of an invasion begins to take hold and begins to suffuse Taiwan's psyche, it could actually make Taiwan more, uh, more vulnerable, I think, to this kind of, you could almost argue, psychological coercion. I think that Taiwan's long-term imperative is to resist that type of a psychological weakening. I think that Taiwan has to have the confidence, self-confidence, and also the assurances from the international community that it will be able to resist its de facto uh, absorption into the mainland. And frankly, from China's perspective as well, I think that for China, it would be far less costly to continue with its present lines of effort, namely it, it, that I've, I've, I've uh, articulated. So building up its bilateral military advantage, working to undermine Taipei's self-confidence, persuading Taiwan that it'll, it will eventually have to acquiesce to its terms for resolving cross-state tensions. I think that for China, continuing those parallel lines of efforts is far smarter and far far less costly than, than, uh, than launching an assault. But I, I think that 
we need to ensure that we uh, we need to ensure that we don't feed into fatalism uh, on the part of Taiwan. Uh, one last point. I think it's actually quite interesting that there seems to be, based on uh, based on a number of articles that I've read and a number of conversations I've had with colleagues in recent weeks, there does seem to be something of a divergence between uh, threat perceptions in in Washington and Taipei. And you could argue that that divergence owes in part to a certain sense of desensitization, namely that because Taiwan has been living under this kind of sort of Damocles of a uh, of a potential Chinese incursion for so long that perhaps Taiwan doesn't infer too much from China's recent escalation of saber rattling. And yet, having having issued that caveat, um, at least when I speak with individuals in Taiwan, when I speak with close observers of security dynamics in the Indo-Pacific, uh, many observers I speak with, and, and, and many of whom are based in Taiwan, um, they actually don't believe that uh, an invasion is necessarily imminent. They certainly don't disclaim the, the long-term possibility, um, but they seem to be more concerned about the possibility that China will try to wear down Taiwan psychologically, grind it down psychologically, and essentially de facto reintegrate or reunify with Taiwan without having to fire a shot. So I, I do think that while a lot of the discussion in Washington as of late has been about the the potential for a near-term scenario, a near-term invasion. I think that in Taiwan, the, the the overriding concern continues to be how can Taiwan maintain its psychological fortitude uh, over uh, over the long haul. And so, if so, the I so I think that the United States should be careful about jettisoning strategic ambiguity. I also think, though, that it needs to think about additional vectors of strengthening its relationship with Taiwan, so that it's not only sustaining its defense partnership and taking that partnership from strength to strength, but that it also is helping Taiwan become more autonomous economically and diplomatically. So there's a lot of implications for Taiwan and its connection with the, the rest of the, the world. And as you mentioned, China does not have to do a solid invasion to affect Taiwan. It can do this through asymmetric methods as well, through coercion as well. But my final question to you, Ali, is what are the global implications, the greater implications for the world if China decides to move on Taiwan either as a military force or not ne necessarily through hard power, but also through coercion and asymmetric uh, warfare? It's a very sobering question, and I, I guess I would offer uh, two answers, You know, one for the kinetic scenario and one for a more uh, sort of psychological approach, uh, for lack of a more uh, elegant phrasing. A kinetic scenario would have uh, grave consequences for global geopolitics. Um, so first of all, just in terms of the immediate ramifications, uh, it's difficult to imagine a situation in which China launches an assault and does so uh, unimpeded. So first, you know, Taiwan has been investing more and more heavily in these so-called porcupine defenses that could, if not forestall a Chinese incursion, could at least slow it down considerably. Um, and China, I, I think that there's a fair consensus that China would have to station hundreds of thousands of troops in order to subdue not only uh, the members of Taiwan's military, but also a population of 24 million. So China would have to contend with the possibility of, a, and also uh, launching an amphibious landing, as I mentioned earlier, would be a very daunting task. Uh, there aren't that many beaches on Taiwan that are that would be conducive to uh, a landing of Chinese forces. And so um, I think that a Chinese incursion uh, could be very bloody, and it could grow uh, very bloody very quickly. There's a possibility for an extended uh, counterinsurgency uh, in in Taiwan. 
certainly if the United States and or some of its Indo-Pacific allies and or partners come into the mix, uh, the consequences grow uh, grow even larger. Uh, if you have a conflagration involving nuclear armed powers, what happens if there are miscalculations or what happens uh, in, in situations of inadvertent escalation? But So there's a risk of a very bloody incursion. There's a risk of uh, a great power war, potentially even culminating at uh, culminating in a, in a nuclear exchange involving the United States and China. Uh, and, and as Kurt Campbell, who is the uh, who is the Indo-Pacific uh, coordinator uh, on the Biden-Harris administration's National Security Council, he gave an interview uh, a few days ago in which he said that uh, any kind of conflict, uh, armed conflict involving Taiwan, uh, it would not only have devastating military ramifications, but it would also have uh, uh, it would also have massive economic spillover effects that would, uh, I think, infect uh, the rest of the world. So I think that in a kinetic scenario, uh, one, there would be very, very grave consequences at an immediate level. I think that the, the United States-China relationship would never be the same. Uh, I think that there would be very real uh, concerns about the the health or the viability of the international system, and of course, when we talk about the post-war order, you know, we use the we use the the phrase post-war order so often that we forget about its foundational significance. The post-war order was founded after a war. It was founded after a war that was so unprecedentedly devastating that policymakers and diplomats and observers felt the need to coin uh, to coin the term post-war order. It was it was that devastating. And the solemn foundational objective of the post-war order was to avert a repetition of a great power war. Um, if there were to be a conflict over Taiwan, I think that many observers would rightly conclude that the post-war order had failed in accomplishing its, uh, its solemn foundational objective. Uh, the consequences for the global economy would be devastating. The consequences for uh, global supply chains would be devastating. So. So I, so we, we shouldn't be sanguine. Uh, I have not spoken to a single observer, whether an observer who, whether you talk to observers who believe that uh, an invasion is, a Chinese invasion is approaching, whether you talk to observers who believe that an invasion is not approaching. Uh, I have not spoken to a single observer who is sanguine that a kinetic conflict would entail devastating uh, military and economic and technological consequences that span the globe. On the psychological scenario, uh, which I I, th I still think on balance is more likely. Uh, the consequences are still serious, but I think that they become more they become more manageable. Uh, I think that if the United States continues to strengthen its partnership with Taiwan, if Taiwan continues to invest more in its asymmetric defenses, it's interesting actually. So the Economist it it uh, it, it generated quite a flurry of discussion when it recently characterized Taiwan or the Taiwan Strait as the most dangerous place on earth and. Taiwan's president herself, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, responded in a lengthy Facebook post in which uh, she said, essentially extended, basically provided reassurances and said, yes, Taiwan faces a, uh, a significant danger from China, but be assured that Taiwan is investing uh, heavily in, in asymmetric defenses. So if the United States and Taiwan strengthen their defense partner, continue to strengthen their defense partnership, if Taiwan continues to invest in, in its so-called uh, porcupine asymmetric defenses, if Taiwan is able to diversify its economic and diplomatic partnerships, if it's able to uh, inject itself more prominently, and if it's encouraged to be brought in more uh, proactively into prominent international fora, 
I think that that combination of efforts um, could give Taiwan, as I said, crucially, the psychological fortitude that it needs to resist psychological coercion. Uh, ultimately, what, ta what Taiwan needs, it needs military support, it needs economic support, it needs diplomatic support, but what it ultimately requires is to have the self-confidence that it can resist uh, psychological coercion over the long haul, that, um, that it can resist the conclusion, or at least the presumption on China's part, that reunification is a preordained outcome. And so the United States and its allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific or the Asia-Pacific should be thinking very hard about what steps they can take to bolster Taiwan's self-confidence. And so in the, in the second non-kinetic scenario, uh, security, military frictions between the United States and China, they will continue to grow. Um, I think the TSMC introduces a new, it injects a new element of destabilization, but I still think that the risks are more manageable in a non-kinetic non scenario, which I, I still believe on balance is more likely than a kinetic one. But let's hope that that, let's hope that that uh, optimism uh, doesn't prove to be overly sanguine. Right. And that's a key point in the sense that though the risks might grow and though uh, the frictions might grow, it is definitely manageable by working together as a partnership. And as you mentioned, this is something that the United States did with Soviet Union, even during the height of the Cold War, to take on common objectives like uh, disease, right? So these are stuff that we could definitely think about and definitely do. And it, it's not always a dark picture in, in the future. So on that note, Ali, thank you so much for joining us today and talking to us about the U.S.-China relationship and the implications of Taiwan and the importance of Taiwan for the United States and the rest of the world. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And that's a wrap for this edition of the Soch Podcast. Special thanks to our guest, Ali Wine for coming on to the show and sharing his insights. Thanks also to Captain Tony Palakaran for conducting the interview. If you're interested in policy discussions related to China, you should check out episode one of the Soj podcast, where Major Tom Fox spoke with Elizabeth Economy from the Council on Foreign Relations. That episode, like all of our Soj podcast episodes, is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and various other podcast streaming services. If you like what you hear, be sure to leave us a five-star review and to recommend our show to your colleagues and friends. Please feel free to send any comments, critiques, or suggestions to sochresearchlab at westpoint.edu. That's S-O-S-H, research, lab, at westpoint.edu. We'd love to hear back from our listeners and are always looking for new episode ideas. The views expressed in this podcast belong to those of the speakers and should not be seen as reflective of the official positions of the U.S. Military Academy, the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or any government entity. As always, thanks again to the West Point Band for letting us use their music. This is Major Yano, signing off. <laughs>